Okay, so this is the third episode of The Spider and the Fly. I am Tiffany. And I'm Ben. All of our episodes are special. This is episode number three. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who have never heard us before, uh, we are the true crime podcast where we drink, we smoke, and we talk about true crime. So, um... With that, let's go ahead and clear the air. Don't we usually clear the air first? Anything bad and evil and malicious and dark out there that is looking to to pull its into its grip, we don't want any of that in our room. We don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to the the sauce? Just that we want clear articulation of our speech and everything that we are speaking is fact to us. And uh, no negativity while we're speaking it, because we're talking about negative shit. Mm-hmm. So we just want to keep it clear and light. Mm-hmm. That's um, it. And with that, I'm going to start tonight's episode off with uh, talking about the Nichols family, the death of the Nichols family. Basically, the story that I'm about to tell you, it involves uh, arson, it involves murder, it involves drug addiction. I feel like I know this story. I mean... I I don't think I know it. Uh-huh. I just think that I've heard of it. It's a pretty high profile uh yeah. pretty high Nichols profile case for sure. Comes to um it. so on the surface Timothy and Deborah Nichols appeared to be the embodiment of the American dream. They lived in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, the couple shared a home and uh, together were, ra- were raising their three children. Jay, who was um Deborah's son, Timothy and Deborah Nichols had Sophia and Sierra, who were both five and three, respectively. Okay. So, three kids that lived with them. Unbeknownst to family and friends, uh, the Nichols family were up to their eyeballs in debt. Despite struggling to maintain a framing business, home framing business, and a floundering karaoke business on the side, the couple was also succumbing to the entrapments of the nightlife. Okay. Deborah Nichols pretty much ran her karaoke business and everything, so she was out most of the time. She'd go and leave to the bar. She was going to work, but she was, you know, doing the whole nightlife thing as she was as she was uh, going out and trying to bring money in for the family. So the couple maintained uh, the appearance of a healthy family. The dark truth was that Timothy and his wife Deborah were both deep in the throes of drug addiction. Not everybody knew that they were doing it. They thought of their suburban life as a hindrance to their partying lifestyle. You know, the whole, you know, white picket fence thing wasn't working out for them anymore, and they decided that they wanted out. Wait, wait, so a hindrance to... Uh, The type of lifestyle that they wanted to live. So the people who are in the neighborhood, basically, like their Mm. neighbors... To me, it seemed more like the path that they were following... Yeah. And that they found themselves on with like three kids and a house and running these failing businesses and the yeah. debt and everything okay. else. But their drug of choice is methamphetamine, mm. a habit that would cost the couple over $500 mm. per week at mm. least. Mm. As a Yeah, and with three kids in the house, shit. it was a, a real toxic environment for everyone, I imagine. I imagine that. I mean, $500 a week? Mm-hmm. That was on top of the $12,000 that they already owed the IRS. Oh, uh, the couple was also over, get this, $200,000 deep with the local chapter of the motorcycle club caused by their methamphetamine addiction. Oh, that's um, not good. And that was uh, who served as uh, the supplier 
Just all around not good. You said twelve thousand. Uh, two hundred thousand dollars at least estimated. Two hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. That may not have been like what they owed in drugs, but like that was part of their part of what they owed for sure. I wasn't able to find any info on the biker gang. The article that I did find on uh, Google uh, was no longer up. So I had to read a cached version of that website. Mm -hmm. But there were only a handful of biker gangs that were active in the Colorado Springs area in the mid-2000s. And uh, this was actually following a massive crackdown uh, initiative on uh, biker meth distribution in Colorado Springs. And I found that out through a rabbit hole while I was doing research. Uh, but this was a juggling act maintained by Timothy and Deborah Nichols. Um, and would eventually come to a head. Deborah Nichols, who insisted that... Uh, Timothy, her husband, took a life insurance policy out for himself, assuming that it would cover the, the three children as well. It's like a family plan sort of thing, in case something happened in an accident. Mm -hmm. On March 7th, 2003, the family's life would change forever as the family home would burn down with the three small children inside. Mm. Deborah had left the house that evening to host karaoke at a local bar, which I believe is called the Tailgater. Or the tailgate. Timothy Nichols would then begin to set into motion a plan devised by Deborah to burn the children alive inside their home. It was later stated that Timothy Nichols, high on meth, had doused the family couch with flammable accelerant, then uh, led the children onto the couch with snacks before sending them to bed. So he had them come onto the couch and uh, kind of roll around in the flammable liquid. Oh my god. Devastating. Accelerant was a product called Goof Off. Are you familiar? It's kind of like a... Like a slime? It's, kind, it's not really a slime. It's kind of like an oily, like, thick liquid. You use to get stickers off of... Um, okay. Like, you know, it takes the stickiness from yeah. stickers off, and it takes away, like, grease marker. Yeah. I actually... I use it quite a bit with retro video game collecting because you get some stuff secondhand and it's the right. only thing that cleans these plastic cartridges up. Okay. Um, but it's this product called Goof Off, but apparently it's extremely flammable. And that was... Uh, Are you telling me that's what he had them roll around in? Yes, and he kind of like peppered it throughout the house. To ensure this house will burn down? Yes. And I'm sorry, what are the age ranges of these kids? <coughs> 11J... Uh, Sophia, five, and Sierra's three. Oh, my God. So two little girls and a little boy. Timothy Nichols' testimony would state that he accidentally knocked over a candle, which resulted in the house fire, although he also told conflicting stories to other people that it was an electric short that started the fire. There wasn't a whole lot of light sh shown on the details of how the fire got started. Okay. In the staged arson, Timothy Nichols is stated to have fallen out the window trying to save the children, claiming to have broken his collarbone. He was also examined to have minor burns on his body, but the doctors that looked at him concluded that these were superficial injuries. He was covering for the fact that he didn't try to save these children or allow, at the very least allowed them to burn alive uh, while they slept. Mm. Uh, but he survived. Timothy Nichols, who stated to fall out the window, he survived superficial injuries. Uh, in the violent blaze, 11-year-old Jay, 3-year-old Sierra, they died from smoke inhalation. So they were in the house breathing in the smoke as the house burned around, uh, down around them. 5-year-old Sophia survived the fire, but was left heavily brain damaged, and the doctors fought desperately and did everything they could in their power to try to, uh, try to save her. But she died shortly, shortly after in the hospital. 
Uh, due to the severity of the fire and the fact that there were casualties, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation called in accelerant-sniffing dogs to the scene. Uh, the arson investigation team was shocked to find what they found um, on the pajamas of the children. Uh, they tested positive for accelerants, the same kind that was found on the couch. Uh, a chemical called xylene or xylene, which was found in this uh, goof-off. So they detected that on the clothing, or should I say the remains, of the children heavy it's a very heavy story in fact i'm gonna take a break here to, to do my shot yeah so um it's heavy and we're not even halfway through uh, i just want to cry like anything involving kids like fuck it's heavy it breaks your heart and you know i don't really want to have a whole lot of darker stuff towards kids on this show right but it happens it happens and these are the stories that we're reporting on and we support the victims if, if anything this is in every case. In, in support, yes. In every story that we do, we support the victims, always. All right, cheers to the victims. Cheers to the victims. And hopefully every fucker who caused them to be victims are put in prison. Here, here. Here, here. It's <laughs> warm going down. Well, it's getting cold out, you know. <laughs> you gotta layer up. Daughter died in the hospital. Um, they found the accelerant on the clothing. I'm sorry, which which one? What daughter is that? The five-year-old, middle child, was the one that survived the fire but died in the hospital. Okay. The details started to uh, kind of come together. It started to become very clear that this wasn't an accident but an arson. Mm-hmm. And it didn't add up for Timothy and Deborah to be behind the deaths of the family uh, initially. Because who in their right mind would start a fire endangering their three their children? Kids. Their whole family. They're, they're everything. And putting the accelerant on them to <clears throat> ensure the job. That is the most horrible way to die. By fire. And it's, it's like cowardly in the case of you causing somebody's death. In the case of you murdering somebody, it's cowardly. As parents of these children, any in any case, it's not right. But why wouldn't you call something that's like going to make them go to sleep and never wake up? Or something like that. Like, to already want to kill them is terrible, but to kill them that way is even more fucking terrible. Yeah, it's a product of their their drug addiction, yes. They're fucking on meth. It started to become very clear that this wasn't arson. Evidence would quickly start stacking up on the couple as their meth-riddled scheme would come to a screaming stop. Right after the night of the fire, I would say within 24 hours of the children dying... Uh, the couple would begin cashing in on the number of insurance policies on the house, including the children, obviously, was the first thing that went through their heads. But also, uh, and this is weird, Deborah tried to get uh, insurance money on the vehicle that wasn't even present <laughs> on the fire. It was the one that she was in when she wasn't there. So that upsets me because... It upsets me. You know. The whole thing! Yeah. They're, they're idiots. They're idiots on top of being monsters. Of course, they hit a hiccup, as they always do when the insurance companies weren't fooled. Deborah tried to claim the vehicle. That didn't happen. I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but there were no active life insurance runners on the children. It was literally a pipe dream. It was something that they thought was in place, but it never, it never existed. How do you think it's in place? You're their parents. The drugs. The drugs and just the stress of all the money that they owed 
trying to make these failing businesses work and trying to keep their family afloat. I mean, you're their parents, though. <laughs> like, you should know if nobody else in the world knows if these kids have a life insurance policy on their life. It was a literal pipe dream. I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, essentially, they died, they died for nothing. They died for nothing. And you're their parents. It's not like you was killing somebody else's kids and you assumed that there was a life insurance policy that you would get some kind of way. They're your kids. Like, how don't you know? Oh, my. Oh, poor, poor kids. They did get the money uh, for the house being insured. Okay, we said that that was their angle, that the house was going to go down. They knew that they were going to get, get the, some money for the house. They knew they were going to get the house. You couldn't be dumb enough. To kill your fucking kids and you didn't insure them. <laughs> Poor kids. I don't mean to laugh, but I can't believe how dumb. Um, despite the insurance money alone, the Colorado Springs community banded together to provide the couple with over $38,000 in donation. Uh, that went to the burial fees and such to, you know, obviously send um, Sophia to the hospital and bury all three of them when they did eventually all die as a result of this mm. fire from smoke inhalation, which is what we're doing on this podcast right now. <laughs> but willingly, we're full adults and we don't have a celery on our clothing. That's true. <sighs> what the fuck? What the fuck? After they buried the children, um, the community knew didn't know that when they provided the, them with the donations, they didn't know that they were behind the murder. But it, it I was thinking about it, and it probably doesn't change anything because it no. allowed... It, no, it doesn't change a thing. You can't discount other people's kindness. But, no, right. You can't discount that, and at least these people are coming together to bury these kids. Yeah. I mean, it was just something bad that happened. Right. Um, and I, and that's, that shows a good... Good faith and goodwill of the community that they were in. I agree. But it's not like they got... It, it's not like they knew that they were getting duped. Right. Because right. they didn't... Nobody knew. Well, right. obviously investigators knew yeah. that... Uh, that shit wasn't right. That shit wasn't right. Yeah. Deborah refused to see her daughter in the hospital, who doctors um, essentially had on life support, but she was reported brain dead. Uh, and she claimed that it was too much for a mother to handle, which... I imagine it's fair, you know what I mean, in good faith, before they knew that she was Mm -hmm. behind everything. Mm -hmm. But she would continue to distance herself from her children uh, by not attending the funerals of the children that the community put together for everybody. She denied herself the closure of her children being buried. She has since been to the gravesites of of her deceased children, but... She, she didn't, didn't go to the funeral? She didn't go to the funeral. She didn't visit the, the daughter in the hospital. Um, very traumatic event, even if she planned it. Oh, my gosh. It just keeps getting worse and worse. She didn't go to the funeral? I, you're the mother. You carried these kids. Um, you birthed them. The following two days, she would be out drinking and even singing karaoke on one occasion. But, you know, I'm not the one to judge how somebody mourns. Yeah. We all mourn right. differently. We all right. mourn differently. You right. know what I mean? So We all experience grief differently. And this is coming from somebody that, 
uses karaoke as a way to kind of deal with some very complicated feelings. You're right. You know what I mean? So that's still giving her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Look, looking <laughs> at this from the outside. That's not knowing what we know. That's not knowing like what anybody knew at this but, point. But knowing what we know, I guess that shows like the emotion that she was going through. You not going to this hospital to visit your daughter. You not going to their funeral shows your guilt. There's no way that a mother who just went to host karaoke one night and her kids burned in the fire would not be rushing to the hospital to be with her daughter. That full on shows your guilt. So, um... All the lab work comes back. It's an apparent arson. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that this is an arson at this mm. point. And uh, the investigators, they didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to believe that it was the family themselves, Timothy and Deborah Nichols, that caused this thing to come together the way it has. Right. That, I mean, because obviously that's what all the evidence pointed towards. They're shocked. They're shocked to find out that was the case, and that's when they started looking into it, I guess. But, like, they're still kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt because it doesn't really make sense why somebody would logically do something like this. It was uh, a combination of Timothy Nichols' sloppy storytelling and uh, the ultimate suspicion of being the only adult there mm-hmm. when uh, everything went down and essentially being, you know, you're the only accountable person there. Uh, he eventually became the prime suspect for the premeditated murder of his children, but only with very circumstantial evidence. They didn't have anything tangible to tie that to be his motive. Uh, aside from the insurance money, which is the house, and the supposed insurance that was going to be on, on the children themselves. Still, what a hor- horrible thing to do. Still. It's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It was Just actually... Yeah, burn well, the house down. Why do you have to kill the kids? The kids were in. The kids were caught in the fire. Maybe he intended to. Well, see, that's the thing. It's like if he intended to save them, he wouldn't be having them roll around in lighter fluid no, or goof off. He wouldn't. He would ensure that they, just like she wasn't there, he would ensure that the kids wasn't there too. Mm-hmm. It was actually Sandra Wilson, Deborah's mother, who insisted uh, and pestered the fourth judicial district attorney uh, by the name of John Newsom. Uh, as soon as he took office, begging him to do something about the deaths of her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So she pretty much went to the court saying so- somebody needs to do something about investigating what actually happened there because something happened. things aren't adding up the way that they say <clears throat> that they are. And she just, you know, she just wants justice for, for the kids. Right. Uh, investigators were given uh, clearance to tap the Nichols phones and came away with the circumstantial evidence uh, that I mentioned earlier um, and it all painted Timothy in a bad light like I said circumstantial evidence it was something for them to move forward for and they wanted to make sure that they had all their ducks in a row if they were behind it then they would get them for murder and a number of other felonies but the grand jury came back with murder indictments for Timothy Nichols the case broke wide open. The case goes to court and Timothy is convicted with a big steaming pile of evidence that he has been charged with 19 counts, including first-degree murder, arson, drug possession, child abuse, mm-hmm. animal abuse, which means that either they had a, a pet in the house mm-hmm. or somebody's pet was, was hurt in the mm-hmm. fire. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy, theft, of course the big one, insurance fraud, 
Yeah, a man who was part of the story was defense attorney by the name of Dennis Hartley, who was this uh, hotshot defense lawyer uh, when it came to some of the most despicable criminals, including uh, Timothy McVeigh, the Mm. Oklahoma City bomber. Mm. But he suggested that the couple remain married for two reasons. One, it would make them look better in front of a jury. The second reason would come to be in 2008, the other shoe would drop and the evidence would show that Deborah is just as guilty as her husband. Hmm. Well, how does them staying married make either of them look better? As a defense attorney, he probably didn't want to have to deal with a divorce on top of on top of being their defense attorney. As a defense attorney, I think that I would choose one of the other two defense. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I don't care if y'all get a divorce or whatever. Like, I'm not handling that, but... I'm only going to defend the less guilty, but the the wife appears to be. Uh, yes, I think that's the thing. Like uh, at that point, he was just Timothy Nichols' defense right. lawyer, and right. then. But that guy, uh, keep a note on him, mm-hmm. um, the defense lawyer Dennis Hartley, because uh, the ending of the story, or at least the twist in his story, um, kind of bears out. I I would say fittingly. Okay. So just just listen for that. All right. So Timothy Nichols was convicted in May of 2007 on three counts of felony murder to serve three life sentences. This is where a character named Hiram Church slides into the scene. Hiram is uh, Timothy Nichols' cellmate mm-hmm. in jail. It was from him that the court learned that goof-off was used as the accelerant, not to mention that cans of the product were found all around the house, outside the shrubbery, like in the bushes and stuff like that. Uh, Hiram Church also claimed that Timothy Nichols had told him that the two had been planning the murder of their children well in advance. Uh, Deborah Nichols denied all of these claims made by her husband's cellmate, but um, by him coming forward and doing this kind of allowed them to dig up dirt on Deborah Nichols and bring her in for her own her own trial. The evidence would eventually catch up with her. Attorneys were initially frustrated when Timothy Nichols was convicted and sentenced because the evidence shows that she was equally responsible. That would soon change. With the amount of evidence surrounding Deborah, her fate would not fare better than her husband's. Though her trial was dragged out to last six weeks, during her trial she continued to deny the claim that she was responsible for the children's death. The mother Sandra Wilson testified for her daughter, claiming that her daughter had loved her kids. She even mentioned that she made several attempts to sway Deborah from her addiction to meth. Here's a quote. First, I want everyone to know I love my daughter, Wilson said. I'm devastated losing her and what she's done to my grandchildren. Deborah was eventually sentenced to serve. Assistant District Attorney Amy Mullaney, she said this in her closing statements. People who commit a cold-blooded act feel nothing for those they've made suffer. And these children did suffer. What she did was a horrible, monstrous act. She's earned every day of this sentence. Mm-hmm. Deborah Nichols was found guilty in 2008 on three counts of first-degree murder and other crimes. Well, of course, the other crimes and sentenced to life without prison without the possibility of parole. She currently resides at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, where she will likely wither into an old woman and die serving her sentence. I was unable to find anywhere Timothy Nichols uh, was serving his sentence after he was held at El Paso County Jail was where he met Hiram Church. 
The most recent contact with the public Deborah Nick has made was with um, an investigator. A uh, Her name is Lori Martin of KKTV 11 in Colorado Springs. She interviewed her briefly about the circumstances of her sentence. Deborah still maintains that she was not responsible for the death of her children. At the very least, she did not kill them. Uh, she has made efforts calling into question the record of the fire investigator, which was initially called to the scene. Uh, she was even went as far as to hire a second fire investigator to get a second opinion. I think she's just in denial. She doesn't want to admit that she got caught and she slipped up. And Clearly. And you not, like I said, like you not going to the hospital to as soon as you heard about it like I don't care what parent you are like even if you're not a parent even if you were like just a distant relative you know you hear that these other two children unfortunately perished in this fire and there's one who survived aren't you automatically rushing to the hospital you know like in any case in any family member instance you're doing that so it's just like how dare you you're going to hire another fire investigator when all signs point to you? Mm. Yeah, so uh, Deborah Nichols, as recent as 2017, has been trying to get a new trial, withholding her stance uh, that she was not guilty. You are guilty. Uh, the, You're course, guilty. <laughs> in 2017, that same year that she uh, tried to get a new trial, the Colorado Supreme Court denied her of her appeal. Okay. So... Nobody's buying her her line of bullshit. Yes. Bullshit. Jay, who died when he was 11, Sophia, who died when she was 5, and Sierra, who died when she was 3, were all buried next to each other in the Woodland Park Cemetery in Teller County, Colorado. Do you have any questions or final thoughts? Because that's pretty much the end of it. Kind of a sad one. <laughs> it's a really yeah, sad only one. Only like how terrible for the kids. Like they're literally in- innocent victims in it all, and they have two idiot parents, and it's just unfortunate. Like they didn't ask to be here, you know. Like anything involving kids is terrible, and so I just feel like that's just like a heavy. That's heavy. It's heavy. You know, you the, know. the way that they died and the way that they chose to do that is terrible, and. The, I agree with the judge. You deserve every bit of this sentence. <laughs> you deserve every bit of it because it's just terrible. That's so terrible. What poor children. Yeah, so um, I do have some uh, notes to wrap up towards mm. the end of the story. And if you have any questions, just let me know. No um, Dennis Hartley, the uh, attorney, the defense attorney of mm-hmm. Timothy Nichols. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he eventually resigned um, from being an attorney in disgrace because it was found that he mishandled a lot of cases and like took money in very oh. underhanded ways. Uh, so he was a crooked attorney this whole time. Okay. That may or may not be irrelevant to the case, um, but it doesn't help the credibility of the defense attorney that defended. I mean, I don't think it, it has anything to do with this case in particular. Like The way he handled it, of course, is weird and yeah. wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that what they did before he was their defense attorney. So doesn't really you don't so you don't really think it's much of a stain on his mm. illustrious career. I mean, no, he it was just like another something else that he would handle terribly <laughs> in that case. You know, I don't sure. think like it it really applies to the case itself. 
All right. I have one more thing that kind of that kind of just disturbed me. The name of their street, the name of the street that their house was built on, mm-hmm. it was called Undimmed Circle. Mm. <laughs> That's weird. It's creepy, isn't it? <laughs> I found that to be a very eerie, a very eerie artifact. Yeah. Of the story. <laughs> Yeah, just one of the, something that made you go, hmm. Yeah, hmm. hmm. Very ah. interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> um, and I did have a question for you now. Mm. Doesn't it make you kind of wonder what her favorite karaoke song was or, like, the song that she would always sing? Because you've seen me ca- do karaoke a number of times now. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen me sing this one song by the Arctic Monkeys that I, that I pull out every now and again because it's, like, the one song that I know. Mm-hmm. Every, I feel like everyone does karaoke's got like one song that they know right, that they keep abs- in their back pocket. That's the point. And I, I just I wonder what uh, Deborah Nichols song was. Yeah, and I wonder what that song was that she was singing the song instead she's... of going to the funeral and all that other shit. Yeah, what was it? What 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 were the karaoke songs that she was singing yeah. after her children died? Yeah. How how deep was that guilt? And what song showed that guilt? I agree. It'd be interesting to know these things. It would be. Oh, yeah. Um, sources. So I wanted to cover sources with you real quick. Mm-hmm. So the biggest source that I had in this um, in this story was from the Gazette by a uh, journalist named Dennis Huspini. Conrad wrote... Springs. No, no. This is... The Gazette is a syndicated, okay. syndicated story. This journalist was following the story okay. and put together a very very good idea of what of it, like a timeline it wasn't the only timeline that I referred to but it was a very interesting one right that I thought was like okay you can, you can kind of see for yourself what happened when it happened mm-hmm. um, and then there's some there's a lot there's other details peppered in there that I just simply didn't have time to to research so I'm not going to mm-hmm. talk on if you're mm-hmm. interested in the story do your own research mm-hmm. um, it's out there it's very interesting stuff if you um, if you like digging in the dirt and getting into the bones of the story um, another one was the interview, which you can watch right now on uh, Colorado Springs 11 KKTV, the interview that she did in 2017, where they straight up ask Deborah Nichols, did you murder your children? Did you do this? No, 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 mm. I would never do such a thing. You can watch that interview mm. for yourself. Okay. Uh, that was another interesting source that I watched multiple times uh, when researching this. Mm. Uh, the Rapid City Journal. Oh, and a court document that I found was very handy called uh, Nichols versus Colorado, and that's the the official court document, mm. which goes into how Timothy Nichols had his cellmate kind of mm. bring her into justice. Okay. Um, which might I add to that is kind of weird. Uh huh. You had the cellmate do it. Well, I think he had details to the story that. Um, that weren't wasn't public knowledge at that time. Yeah. So he was the one that came out and said and brought a lot of these things to light as to that she was guilty as well. So the cellmate is doing mm-hmm. it so that he can just get a little break on his own, probably. Well, I mean, he a maybe just a jailhouse snitch. I mean, he might be a jailhouse snitch. He might know that this guy killed his daughter and he and his, you know, his three kids. And this bitch also killed was in on killing the kids. Yeah, I mean, like he's already he's already gonna be serving his time, but right. you know, it was the right choice to make for this guy. Obviously, it was. It, was. it obviously was. <laughs> I bet you he got a little time off. 
that's what I guess too, but you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, but yeah, that's the story of um, of the Nichols family, Timothy and Deborah Nichols, whose, wow. whose children died in a fire. Mm. Devastating, but good. I feel so terrible for the children involved because they're innocent in the whole thing. And then you have two idiot parents who ultimately kill you for no reason because they didn't purchase life insurance, you know? Who else would have purchased this life insurance if you didn't? It's yeah. terrible. Yeah, the motives behind it, just the uh, the drug the, motive. Ad- the drug addiction, mm-hmm. just the whole distorted reality, the fact Four kids. Yeah, the fact that yeah. I'm sorry that there wasn't anybody there to prevent this, to stop them from executing this plan. Like, well, so you know, you say that, but um, throughout the story, the mother of, of Deborah, I'm going to try to, Sandra Wilson, she, you know, she was kind of a voice for these deceased children. She put a lot of effort into making, it, you know, the whole story behind why they had to die. Well, at least she's like bringing a conclusion to it, you know, making sure that justice is sought in it. If nobody else thought it weird, she did, so that's good. But it's just so terrible. It's so terrible. Oh, there's one other note that I just, for whatever reason, I, did, I didn't mention before. She had another child after her son, after she had her son, which apparently um, died of sudden infant death syndrome. They said they tried to say that she was responsible for that as well. Mm. So. That may or may not paint a, a better picture for you. That makes the whole shit different. Because then I think you have like some Munchhouse, you know, by proxy type shit. Well, that information didn't come out until after the fact. Now we can look at it and dissect it, but they're being very deceptive in what they were showing people. Well, and only in that case, I guess. Because if you're not around, if she wasn't around for the other kids, and then you're like, didn't go to their funeral or anything, like, that's kind of the opposite if she had Munchhouse. Now that I say that, you know, because that's opposite. Because they seek attention. They want people to sympathize for them and, you know, treat them, baby them because this tragic thing happened. So she avoided all that. So I guess that's totally different. Yeah. Yep. So um, Mm, it's even more terrible. (laughs) It just breaks your heart. Yeah. Like some people shouldn't be allowed to have kids. So mine is on something that didn't happen too long ago, a couple years ago. Kind of a uh, high profile is on the murder of Shanann, Bella, and Celeste Watts. Okay. Are you familiar? No, I'm not. I think as I go on, you might be. Because um, when we was working together, I brought this shit up. Okay. I want to start by giving my sources. Mostly, most of my sources come from the documentary series that came on Netflix. Um, it's called American Murder. It's called The Family Next Door. Um, I also got some other things off of Google, uh, specifically from Film Daily, Honestly Yours, which I will... That article I will talk about a lot <laughs> um, on the side. After I give the whole actual story, that's my my side piece from gotcha. Honestly Yours. And um, Crime Talk is off of YouTube. 
So, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to give some background as I'm going through the story. We start off on August 13th, 2018. So, a friend of Shanann Watts, her name is Nicole Atkinson. Uh, she dropped Shanann off at home at around 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, They're just coming back from a business trip from Arizona. As I went into it, more it was more like a retreat type of thing Yeah. that they went to. And so they had just came back around 2 a.m. She drops her off. The next day, Nicole starts calling and texting Shanann um, early in the morning because while they were on this business trip, she was sick. I'll just say right now, she was pregnant, so she was she was sick, so they was concerned about her because she wasn't eating or drinking like she normally would be. Mm-hmm. And she seemed to be in distress while on this trip as well. And I'll get into that more as well. She's checking into her. This is like her best friend and her co-worker. They've known each other for like three or four years. They have kids the same age. Their kids play together. They work together. And, you know, besides working, they're friends. So she has a lot of insight into what's going on in her life. Um, so she's like calling her and texting her and Shanann is not responding to any of these calls or text messages. And they're like repeatedly, you know, like she started, I want to say probably about seven o'clock in the morning. And by 11, she's like, I'm really worried. You know, like you haven't responded to me. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So because she's not responding, Shanann's not responding. Nicole goes over to her house. Now, Shanann is a mother of a three and four year old babies they're little girls she goes over to the house and the house is quiet like nothing is going on in this house neither one of us have children but obviously if you have children who are three and four you can hear something going on at 11 o'clock in the morning like something's going on in this house and so she goes over there and the house is quiet because the house is quiet and she hasn't heard from Shanann she calls the police in this moment in time, anyway, Chris Watts, who is Shanann's husband, is, um, like I said, in this moment in time, he's also missing. Uh, Nicole calls the police. The police show up. They're talking to Nicole. And she's, like, you know, basically telling them why she's worried, uh, why she's concerned, laying down the whole line. You know, she has these babies. The house is quiet. We had a business trip yesterday. She was sick. She's not responding to me. This is unlike her. Just basically going down a list of why she's worried. When the police arrive, they need permission to enter into the premises. So, Nicole calls Shanann's mother. Her name is Sandy, or Sandra. I think I'm saying it right, but I think it's Ruzik. So, they call her because the house that they live in is owned by Shanann's parents. So, they call her to get entry into the, get like the key code to the garage to open up the door. And her mom is frantic, like, what the fuck is going on? Right. You know, like, I talked to Chris, and he's telling me that Shanann is out with another one of her friends. And her friend Nicole was like, well, who was that? Right. <laughs> you know? He's like, well, I don't know who that is. You know, but she said she took her and the kids, went to go be with these other friends. Now, this is like, she starts, she drops this woman off, Nicole drops Shanann off at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's 7 o'clock when she started texting her and calling her and everything, and she's not responding to anything. Between 7 and 11 o'clock, what friend did she go hang out with? Right? 
And I think it also it speaks a lot that the mother is like, well, he told me she's with these friends. Like, she obviously keeps in close contact with her parents and her friends. Mm-hmm. From everything I've seen, she's always with these kids, you know. And there's like a little bit of background information on that is that she never thought that she she was told she couldn't have kids because she had lupus. Okay. And so she gets blessed with these two babies and then she's pregnant with a third. So I don't see her not being around these kids. You know what I'm saying? I don't see her not keeping in communication with everybody that she's close to and telling who she's going with with these kids. Like it just doesn't it doesn't fit as a mother. So that's what the mother Sandy is saying, Sandra is saying you know, he told me that she's went, went with one of her friends, but he didn't know who, and he didn't tell me who. While all this is going on, he comes back. I didn't really get it clear if somebody called him and was like, hey, the police is here, or if, like, Nicole got in touch with him, like... But he comes while the police are there. So, like, the beginning of this documentary is showing a police cam. So this is, like, everything that happened at the time. So he comes up, and he's frantic. But... I haven't I haven't noted here like his appearance is forced like his him being upset about his wife and two kids being missing is like forced. It's like I have to be frantic. You know what I'm saying? And that's like something else that comes up a little bit later on, not mm. too not too much later, but a little bit. So they enter the house. He finally gets there. The mother is still on the phone with Nicole saying, Enter the fucking house. I'm giving you permission. Like, what's going on? Stay on the phone with me. They enter the house. Shanann and the two girls are not there. Bella and Celeste are not there. Everybody is walking through this whole house. Even him. You know, like he hasn't been there or whatever. You know, he's too searching the house. So they come across her purse, which has her medication in it that she has to take every day. Well, first, they, they notice her phone is still there. And there's, like, these text messages from him, like, baby, where are you? You know, like, laying on thick, you uh-huh, know? And sure. it's like, in light of what we know, this is some bullshit. So, anyway, there's text messages from him, and he's like, I haven't heard from her either. Like, she told me she was going with this friend. and So, they find her phone, and then they find her purse, and has medication in there. And in both instances, when they find this, her friend is like, you can see the worry on her face. You know, like she's talking to her mom and she's like, her phone is still here. And then he picks it up like, she works from this phone. This is her lifeline. And her and the friend is like, telling her mom, her phone is still here. Then they find her purse. Oh my God, her purse is here with her medication in it. Like she wouldn't ever be apart from her purse, her phone, her medication. In the moment of all this, like I said, the friend is frantic and she's worried as fuck. And she should be, because this is one of your best friends. You know that she was sick yesterday. And it'll come out later. But she also knows the state of their relationship. So she's worried. Which she should be, because this is your best friend. While the cops are, like, questioning Chris and Nicole. And, you know, because she called the cops anyway. Mm -hmm. While they're questioning her, Chris and Shanann's neighbors, his name is Nate... Trinistich, mm-hmm. I believe is how you pronounce it. I'm I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. He comes forward and says that he has like video of the neighborhood. Like it's his own personal home surveillance. It shows a whole street of people who are like up and coming up and down the street and like behind him and everything. Like it's his own personal surveillance. So he comes forward and says he has that shit. The cops and Chris 
go over to this man's house and view his surveillance. Now, while they're over there, Chris is like fidgety. He never once really looks at the video. Now, this is my wife and my children who are missing. You say you got surveillance. There's no way that I'm not looking at that shit like, well, what do you got on here? Who showed up at my house? All we see on this surveillance is him backing up into their driveway. It's 517 in the morning. Now, keep in mind, she just got home at 2. And you can see him loading and unloading shit. The cop and the neighbor are both, like, looking at the TV. And his back is, like, he's, like, right in front of the TV with his back to the TV. So then he'll turn and he'll look at it. And then he'll look back again, look at his phone. And he has a whole explanation about why he was backing up at 517 in the morning. So he says that he was it, it was easier for him to do that to load and unload tools that he had to do for his job. Okay. And then he goes into some weird fucking shit about the neighbors, all of them, like the community having problems with people breaking into people's garages in their cars. The neighbor doesn't say anything about that. He's like, he doesn't acknowledge him. He doesn't say like, yes, yeah, yeah, that that happens. You know, like, yeah. He doesn't say any of that. He's just looking at him like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. So, So Chris is like giving this explanation about why he's loading and unloading shit. He also gives that weird story about people breaking into garages. And then he also offers that she's pregnant. And so that's like at the beginning of like the documentary, that's when it comes out. You know, that she's pregnant. And then they go into, like, they show how she tells him she is. And, you know, he's extra happy about it. And it turns out it's a little boy. And he's super happy because they got two girls. And, you know, the whole works. They go into that. And then it comes back to Chris leaving the the neighbor's house. And the cop is like, I'm going to get his information. I'll be back over there to talk to you. Soon as he walks out the door, the neighbor is like, he's acting fucking weird. And he's like, he's never this frigidy, and he doesn't talk this fucking much. You know, like, he's fucking weird. And he mm. went, goes back to the video, and he, like, shows him. He's like, if you look and see this, like, he never loads and unloads shit. He's like, I've never seen him do any of that. He's quiet. Nobody ever talks to him. You know, like, the way he, he's over here talking so much and giving explanations about why he's doing that. And he is also offering some other story about people breaking into the garage that has nothing to do with nothing Hmm. you know so the neighbor's like he's acting fucking weird he notes that you know the cop is like well you gotta put yourself in his position his wife is missing his kids are missing and you know you never know somebody's reaction the neighbor's like yeah i can get it (laughs) But fuck that. You know, like, this motherfucker's <laughs> acting weird. <laughs> yeah, but fuck that. <laughs> that was, like, his face of inspection, and I, I felt that. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I can put myself <laughs> in his position, and yeah, it's fucked up what's happening right now. His wife is missing, and so is his kids. But he's acting fucking weird. And the only thing I get is on this on this at 5.17 in the morning is on my surveillance is him pulling up into the shit. Nobody else, Right. Okay, so the next day, we'll move on to the next day. They basically leave the house after that without any explanation or anything. They just like, we'll hit you up tomorrow. <laughs> basically is what it it felt like. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, we don't know where she's at. She's not here, but this is the initial thing, and she could just 
have went on a small trip and took these kids is basically what I what I felt. But the next day, the very next day, they contact Chris to get information about the kids and they're like, We're gonna send out some alerts and you know, we need to get all the information that we need to get from you. So before I finish on what happened the next day, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into them a little bit. Shanann and Chris met on Facebook. From what they showed her, she seemed to be like very ambitious and like about herself. Kinda controlling, but in a way that she wants everybody around her to be successful, she also wants to be successful herself. They talk about her being like 25. It's her own personal words or whatever. She was given like a video she had. And when she was growing up, her parents worked hard for everything they had. They wasn't like rich and she, nothing was handed to her. She worked hard and built built her own house when she was 25. That is a huge fucking accomplishment. You know, mm-hmm. I will fucking give her that. And then, you know, like, she, her health started declining. She found out she had lupus, and it was just, like, a dark loop for her. And then she meets Chris. He's kind of like her knight in shining armor, <laughs> you know, prince, you know, knight in shining, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Because he shows up in the time of her in a bad place. Uh-huh. And he's, like, pursuing her, but she wasn't looking for a relationship, but he pursued her. And what I want to highlight about that really quickly is, like, when he's pursuing her, he's kind of a chunky dude. Right? And she's like, I don't want anything to really do with you. But they end up getting married. Like, he pursues her, and he wins her over, and they start dating or whatever. Eventually, they get married 2012. Now, a side note on that is his family does not like her. And they do go into it. They didn't show up to their wedding. So, he went on and married her, and nobody from his family was present. So that's kind of a huge red flag into the relationship. You know, like, it kind of speaks volumes. Now, you you don't marry a person for their family, but you you do marry the family. True. And you want to be in good with your in-laws. So I couldn't imagine being a woman, and I'm not, like, judging her. I don't know her situation. I don't know what was happening. But I wouldn't want to marry someone, and his parents didn't show up to our wedding. You know, like, besides anybody else, I don't give a fuck about anybody else, but their parent, your parents didn't show up. Like, I feel like there's some shit you have to work on. And he went on and married her anyway, but I feel like he resented her very early on in the marriage. Sure. Because of it. But you you went on and married her anyway. You know what I'm saying? I'm Especially not... after, after he pursued her. Right. So, they that does come up in a documentary that um, his family didn't like her, but... Right now, just a little background information to lead up to where I'm at. They have Bella, and then they have Celeste. That's where I'll leave it right there at the moment. We're going to go back to August 14th. So they're talking to Chris, and they're getting bulletins out, like, you know, information about what each girl looks like, markings and tattoos and all that shit for all three of them. And they're also canvassing the neighborhood. So, like, something that comes up later on um, that's kind of important now is one of the neighbors says, you know, like, um, they didn't notice anything or anything anything weird. But she did notice a truck that was parked, like, down the street, like, not in front of the Watts house, but kind of, like, all around the corner, like, on the street. That just, like appeared there and hasn't moved he she's like the dad has a great big truck that he uses for work or whatever but this one was smaller and i never seen it before 
is kind of key later on. Like I said, there are cameras in the neighborhood, and that comes up. Now, like I said, one of my sources was an article called, um, the platform is called Honestly Yours. It is basically going over shit that they didn't talk about in this documentary. And one of those things that they talk about that they didn't talk about in the documentary is how these neighbors, like the the guy who caught him on camera, also heard them fighting with each other often. And like loud enough to be outside. You know what I'm saying? So that's one thing that they didn't put into the documentary that I want to touch on. That they were having problems in their marriage. So they are interviewing the neighbors. And that's like those are things that come up in that time. And in the same day, he gives this awkward fucking interview to all the news platforms here in Denver. So like seven, nine, four, thirty-one. You know, he gives an interview Can to Can you them. watch them online? Yes. I watched it myself. Uh, I remember this shit. And I was like, he fucking did it. <laughs> it was just after I watched that interview, I was I couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe my eyes. I I honestly couldn't. I was like, this is the craziest thing right now. Like he reads guilty. I mean, right now, I don't even want to just, like, throw anything out there. Like, I hope that she's somewhere safe right now and with the kids. But, I mean, could she have been? Could she have just taken off? I don't know. But if somebody has her and they're not safe, like, I want them back now. Like, that, that, that's what's in my head. Like, if they're safe right now, they're going to come back. But if they're not safe right now, that's what that's the not knowing part. Like, yeah, this might be a tough question, but... It- did you guys get into an argument before she left? It wasn't. It wasn't like an argument. We had an emotional conversation, but I'll leave it at that. But it's. I just want them back. <laughs> I just. I just want them to come back. And if. If they're not safe right now, that's what's. That's what's tearing me apart. Because, if they are safe, they're coming back. But if they're not, this. This. This has got to stop. Like somebody has to come forward. Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just. Just come back. Like, if somebody has her, just please bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete with without anybody here. Please bring her back. It's an awkward fucking interview to all the news platforms. And he's talking about, whoever has them out there, I just want them back. Like, wherever they are, I just want them back. And I can't even fathom, like, what could be going on. And, I, and he just keeps saying, like, I want them back. And... His face and everything is not sincere. It's not sincere for somebody who has two small kids and a wife who is pregnant. It's not sincere. And like I said, I viewed it for my fucking self and I was like, that is weird. He get This is the same day that he gives his fucking interview to all the news groups, the major news groups. And then they, the police also bring him in for their own interview. During his interview, he gives an explanation on... The hard conversation that he had with Shanann when she came home. He said they got into a heated argument or conversation the night before she became missing or whatever. But he didn't want to go into it. So the cops was like, well, we need to know what the fuck that, what the fuck that conversation was about. Like, you ain't talking to the news groups right now. We need to know. To sum it up, um, they he basically is talking about how he tells her that he wants... A separation. 
And, you know, then, of course, they were emotional. And so the cops, you know, basically comes out and asks him if he's having an affair. And he's like, no, like, I never cheated on my wife. I never cheated on her. Like, this is not that. And he talks about how she doesn't get along with his parents. Before this happens, Shanann took her kids. So they are, she's from New Jersey, but her parents was living in North Carolina. At the time of this. And uh, he is from North Carolina. So they moved here. They met in North Carolina. And they moved here to Colorado. Frederick, Colorado is where they moved. Mm. She went back to North Carolina for six weeks. To take her kids down there to see his parents and hers. To visit. And at the time that they was down there. One of the daughters. I believe it was Celeste. It was Celeste's birthday. They celebrated her birthday down there. There was an incident while he was. While she was over at his parents house. They already don't like her right. Celeste the little baby. She has a lot of allergies. And she's allergic to everything. Like peanuts and all kinds of shit. Mm -hmm. And the grandma. (laughs) Which is Chris's mom. Her name is uh, Cindy Watts. She buys this ice cream, and she buys it for the kids. Uh, Shanann, like, freaks out because it's, like, everything in this ice cream is what Celeste is allergic to. So she freaks out, and she's like, you are trying to kill my kids, and you can't ever see them again, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, freaks out on them. I I don't have an opinion about it either way because I don't know the situation. This is two different stories that you're receiving. So there's like somebody else, um, the mother's side and Shanann's side of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm not going to get into that whether the mom knew farewell. Like, why would she do that to her grandkids? You know, like, I think it was an honest mistake or whatever, but Shanann like blew it up and she calls Chris like, your mom was trying to harm our kids today. Like, there's like text messages that she sent him. He's basically bringing that incident up in this interview with the cops about the conversation they had leading to their separation. Um, he's bringing all that up. That was the hard conversation they was having. Not about him having an affair or anything, right? That's his explanation about why he wanted to separate, basically, in this interview from what I got from it. They asked me if he had an affair. He says no. He never cheated on his wife. So, also on the same day, the police are, are contacting his supervisor. His name is Luke Apple. They're verifying his alibi about where he was that day, you know, when she came up missing, after he left at 517 that morning. And it turns out that he was at this ranch called Survey Ranch. The company owns several wells on that property. It came to me that he was a mechanic. I'm not sure exactly what he was doing for this company or why he was there, per se. Mm-hmm. They say he was a mechanic, so I'm not sure. But he was. it turns out that he was on that ranch that day, and the supervisor verifies it. Now, that ranch is significant, and it'll come up later. We're going to go on to August 15th. So this is, like, day two mm-hmm. after they're missing. He comes in to take a polygraph test. There's many things that I want to say about the cop who performed the polygraph, the woman. I don't like her. <laughs> so and I'll get to why I don't like it. I'll I'll get to it. So he comes in for the polygraph test and she's like, well, you know, pumping him up. At first she's like very friendly with him. She's cool with him and shit. And she's like, well, you know, if you know anything about this or if you plan to come in here and you're lying, you're gonna be deceptive. Like you know, it'll be stupid of you to come in here and lie to me, basically, because I'm gonna know if you're lying. Is what she tells him. And uh, he's like, oh, no, no, like, I, I'm not lying. Like, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I want to know where they are. I want them home. And uh, 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 yeah. 
He takes the polygraph test and he fails it. And they show like a part in there where she's like, I need you to control your breathing. Like your breathing is all over the place. And he's like, oh, I know. I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm very nervous. And she's like, I understand, but you need to, you need to reel it in and control your breathing. After they, you know, compile it and see that he's, he failed it. They come back in, they confront him. And she's flat out like, I know you're lying. You you failed the, the polygraph. You were deceptive. And you specifically felt where you don't you know where we asked you where her body is or where they are. Do you know where they are? And you're saying no. You know where they are. We're past the part of you lying and failing this polygraph and on to the part of you telling us what the fuck happened. <laughs> it's basically what she tells it. Like we're past the part because he's like, I didn't lie to you. I promise, I swear, like I didn't lie. And she's like, We're past that. We know you lied. You know, and so now we need to know where they are. And then there's another male detective. He's Detective Graham. And he's like, look, you need to take a deep breath. Reel that shit in. We're past that. We know you're fucking lying. We want to know what happened. Where are they? I don't know where they are. I want them back. And she's like, you know that they're not coming back. Like, you may want them to and... That's what you think, but you know, you know full well that they're not coming back and you know what happened to them, so we're just waiting for you to tell us. She, in my opinion, gives him an out, right? Something that never even occurred to him until she says it. She's like, well, what happened? Did Shanann hurt them and then you hurt her? Like, chicks are crazy. That's exactly what she said. And the Detective Graham, the guy's like, hold up, like, no, no. He, like, stops her. Chris is like, can I talk to my dad? They're like, okay. We'll let you talk to your dad if you tell him what happened. He agrees. They bring his dad in. And his dad is uh, Ronnie Watts. So they bring the dad in. Dad sits with him. And he comes up with this bullshit fucking story about how... He had come home and Shanann had smothered these kids. And he caught her in the act of doing it. And so he choked her and killed her. And then after he killed her, he took all three of them. He he took all three of them from the house. And went and buried the bodies because he didn't know what to do. He was so scared because he had killed Shanann that he didn't know what to do. It's, it's completely feasible that if you walked in on your spouse killing your kids, that you would freak the fuck out and kill that spouse. Right? You're not going to go bury all three of them, are you? No. You're not going to go bury all three of them. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I said, it's feasible if you walked into that and you seen that happening and you flipped the fuck out and killed that person, killed your spouse. But immediately, I'm on the phone like, I can just kill my spouse because they killed my kids. You know, you still might go down for the murder of your spouse, but at least you didn't kill your fucking kids. And that's the reason why the spouse is dead. He literally sits up in here and tells his father that's what happened. So they come back in. The police come back in. This woman provided him that story. Even though it's bullshit. She provided him that story. (laughs) That had never occurred to him. 
It had never occurred to him. He was going to deny to the fullest that he didn't know anything about what happened to them, all three of them. He was going to keep going with that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know. He he loved them. And he just, I just want them back. That's all he keeps saying. So, you provided him this out. And he, he ran with it. They ask him where the bodies are at. Basically, he tells them the location. And it's where he worked at the Survey Ranch. He buried Shanann kind of on the outskirts of it. And he put the babies in the well. The Detective Graham is like, you know, basically giving him another chance to come clean about what really happened. And he was like, do you want the world to know and think that Shanann killed her kids? You're comfortable with the world knowing that that's what happened. And he's like, unless you are really this monster. He's like, I'm not a monster. I didn't kill my babies. I didn't kill them. I'm telling you the truth about what happened. Because the detective notices bullshit. There's no way that if you walked in on this woman killing these kids, that you buried all three of them. You buried her, you put them in a well? There's no way. There's no way you're removing the kids from the house if you didn't kill them. Um, He's like, yeah, I didn't do it, you know. Word gets out that he is the one who is responsible for this. That he is actually the one who um, killed Shanann. And at the point, he's saying that Shanann killed these two kids. She had lupus. She never thought that she would be able to get pregnant. She has these two kids. They're like, in her own world, or words, they're like uh, a blessing to her. Because she didn't think she could ever have kids. And then she's pregnant with a third one. Why would she kill them? And and what, what reason does she have, excuse me, what reason does she have to kill them though you know what I'm saying like this woman gave you an out and you ran with it but you don't have any like there's no reason to that theory that this woman killed her kids hmm. back to like a, like my sidebar my background information in the six weeks that uh, Shanann was in North Carolina Chris did not go with her he went out there after she had been gone for five weeks they showed like her own video like she videoed everything she's like very uh much on like social media facebook and recorded everything she's like videotaping everything so when he shows up to the airport like he's not excited like not excited like a father who hasn't seen his kids in five weeks whatever's going on with you and her is different but your kids, you know, you have, like, little babies and you haven't seen them in five weeks. You would be like, oh, my God, hey. You know, like, none of that. So he, like, walks over a little bit. Well, now I can hug you. And the, the kids are more excited than he is. And they're talking to him. But it's just, like, a lack of even wanting to be there with them. Right. You know? And they're, like, showing in the documentary, they're showing, like, text messages that she's sending to her friends. And she's like, he didn't even kiss me when he came. I haven't seen him in five weeks. He did not kiss me. He didn't touch me. He didn't hug me. He didn't do anything. When we kissed, I kissed him. And it was like a very brief thing, you know. She's also like saying like they're not having sex while he was there. You know, like they haven't had sex in five weeks and he wasn't even trying to. He much rather work out. So that brings me back to when I was saying that he was very heavy set when they got married. In one of the interviews, 
He's having with the cops. He's saying that when he first met her, he was 245 pounds. Now I'm like 180 or something. So like a total of like 160, I mean like 60, 65 pounds that he lost. And so he's slim and trim. He got a new body or whatever. (laughs) So I go back to August 15th, the day that he did this polygraph. It comes out that... He has a whole woman that he's been having an affair with. So, like, this whole five weeks while Shanann was in North Carolina, he's been dealing with this other woman. Her name is Nicole Kessinger. When she finds out that these kids and the wife is missing, she came to the police herself. So, they didn't have to, like, seek her out or anything. Right. She came to the police herself, and she's, like, laying down... Everything that was happening. So that's what I'm saying at the point. So they they were co-workers. And all this happened in August. She met him in June. Like the beginning of June when she first started working there. And then their relationship became from platonic to romantic by the end of June. So he's having this affair with her. I want to say like the whole month of July. Basically like. Because she was saying like Chris was going to be coming end of July to North Carolina. Okay. So... In that five-week time, he's with her this whole fucking time. <laughs> he's with her the whole time. So when she comes to the cop, she's telling him, like, um, like their shit started the beginning of June. It got physical by the end of June. He <laughs> told her um, that he had two kids and that he was married, but he was going through a separation. She's, like, with him all the time. Like, this whole five weeks, she thinks that he's... Shanann's gone. She don't know that they are, like still very much together so like this whole time they're like showing text messages that shenan is sending him like basically accusing him of like not being around and not giving a fuck you know like you more you much rather go work out or do this and do that like you don't even want to touch me or nothing and you know i guess it's like shit's going on before she left and then he gets there, like, they haven't been around each other for five weeks, and he ain't trying to give her no sex. He ain't trying to give her no play. And, you know, she's going for the kids. They kiss because she went for it, not because he hasn't seen her in five fucking weeks. She knows something's wrong. Like, she's texting other friends, like, unless he is, like, getting it from somewhere else. And her friends are like, well, is that all that happened? And she's like, all that happened is the thing with his parents. You know, like, I got into it with his mom because she's trying to kill my kid. Is her perspective. So that was, like, the only thing. She was like, that's the only thing that happened. But meanwhile, he's, like, fucking around with this Nicole this whole time. And I think, like, in my own opinion of things, I think he got with her. She's much younger and she's cute and shit. And I think that he just, like, wanted a whole other life. Like, he did not want to be with Shanann. He didn't want to have these kids. He wanted to be in his new body and slim and trim with this very much active, younger woman. Instead of just leaving her, you know, it'll be fucked up anyway because she's pregnant. But instead of leaving her, you killed her and you killed your kids too? Like, it's fucking terrible so anyway like i said she came to the cops to, pro- to provide all this information so they didn't even bring her up to him like in the polygraph we already knew about her and we didn't even have to ask you so that's why we didn't bring her up in this polygraph because we already knew and we knew that you would fucking lie about it so are you comfortable with the world knowing that shanann killed her kids and you caught her killing your kids and you killed her 
He's like, I didn't know the monster. I didn't kill my baby. He's like, okay. Well, if you're comfortable with this, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to say. Eventually, when all this other shit comes out, when they like lay it down on him, that we know that you were messing with this woman. Other things come out like before Shanann, before she came back. So it's like three days that weekend. She went yeah. to on her business trip to Arizona. While he was out there, he took Nicole out to dinner. And Shanann gets like a notification from their bank account. This dumbass uses the same joint bank account and shit where she can see it. You know, with your dumbass. But uh, honestly, in hindsight, I think about that. I think that he already knew what he was going to do. She gets the notification that he's like spending like $60. Also, Nicole provides this information to the police. Like we went out to the bar. I think it was called Lazy Dog. You know, he's spending like the $65 tab. And Shanann gets this notification and, like, calls him, like, what the fuck, $65? Like, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, I got some salmon, I got this. So she looks up the menu and was like, what you got was only, like, $30. Like, where's this other (laughs) $30, $40 that you spent at this bar? You know, like, no explanation, but she's, like, feeling a way about it. And her friend, Nicole, is the one who's, like, providing that information that, she, like, was asking him and questioning him, and she's, like, looking at other charges that he made while she was gone, and they're all suspicious. The girlfriend, Nicole, says that he had, like, a babysitter that night, and so, like, I looked it up because they didn't talk about it in the documentary about him having a babysitter. So, I, I found it, I looked it up, and it's, like, part of my sources that I found. This thing that comes on YouTube called uh, Crime Talk. And the guy's name is Scott Reshk, I believe it is. And he's like having like a whole interview with the babysitter. Because then the question becomes, when did you kill the kids? When when did all of this occur? So we know at that point that the kids were still alive because the babysitter confirms that Shanann even knew about her watching them. So Shanann knew he was going out that night. Obviously, she didn't know who he was going with. So like I said, the babysitter confirms that she was like texting her and knows about her watching these kids. Like I said, the question in my mind was like, when did he do it? If she's coming home at two o'clock in the morning and the very next day, they're all missing. Like, that's the question. It is confirmed that he did actually hire a babysitter. After he has this conversation with Shanann about the money he spent he takes old girl home and he leaves her house and he like goes to a store like like have him on video surveillance video at a gas station and he had to give money to give to the babysitter so he goes home he gives them the money and everything it's confirmed that at least they were alive saturday night that's when the next day when shanann comes back to her in the morning everything after that is kind of weird shit that didn't come into the documentary like i said came up on this article that I found on this Honestly Yours. Basically, the whole thing is about what they didn't tell you in this documentary. And the thing is by this woman named Shannon Ashley, and this is like a very recent uh, article, actually, like October 4th of this year. One of the things that they were talking about that, like I said, was them not saying that they heard them fighting and shit weeks before the murder. But also, one thing that they don't talk about in this documentary is that Eventually, he does admit to killing these kids. That it wasn't Shanann. That he killed all of them. Without saying it. And and everybody knows that you didn't want this life. You didn't want to be with her. You wanted to be with this much younger chick. And your new bod. Because she was slim and trim and shit. You know what I'm saying? And she Mm -hmm. liked you when you were a fat boy. The turmoil of him 
her and his parents not getting along, I think really like took a toll on him. As well as when this shit happened, there was like a lot of like internet activity as in people saying that they think he's innocent. They don't think that he killed them. And also that she drove them to do it because she was a bitch. And like, I don't want to say any of that because like, like we just said, we don't ever want to victim blame. But I think that she was a difficult person. I think he put up with her because he was, like, overweight and shit and nobody else wanted to talk to him. This is my own personal opinion. I think that he took whatever she was dishing out because he knew that nobody else wanted to fuck with him. And then he, like, loses this weight and now he's slim and trim. And now he don't, he wants to shed that. When he shed the pounds off his body, he wants to shed that whole life. Right. Like, instead of just divorcing her, you know what I'm saying, and making sure you don't get her pregnant again... You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to have been feeling this way for that whole time. Hmm. What they also talk about is when she came home, they was, like, arguing about him cheating because she brought up the charges on his shit. I believe that it came out that he finally admitted that he was cheating on her with this Nicole Kessinger. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, she's upset or whatever. What she's saying is that he tried to kill these kids twice. What he confessed to, after he finally confesses to him being the one to actually kill them, he says that he killed Shanann first, that he loaded all of them up into the car. He drives them out to that ranch, to Survey Ranch, and he buries Shanann, and these kids are, like, asking him what happened. Like, where's my mom? Like, where's my mom? Where you, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to mom? What's wrong with her? And he doesn't tell them anything, of course. He buries her, and then he puts them in the well. Like, he suffocates them and puts them in the well. Hmm. This woman is saying that he actually tried to kill them twice. After he's having this fight with Shanann, he goes into each and one of their rooms, and he smothers them with the pillow. And he thinks that he killed them, and he goes and gets back into the bed with Shanann. And they continued to argue where he went on and killed her. They both wake up from him like smothering her so he didn't kill them. And that's why he like loads them into the car wishing at his body and takes them to this well. Does the same thing to them again and then puts them in the well to make sure that they don't wake up. And that's not what he admitted to. But that's what this woman is saying in this article. And I am like, I guess it's supposed to be that he um, he explained in details these letters that he sent to uh, Sherilyn Cattle. I guess she's going to write a book for him. And he like told her what really happened. So he admitted to like saying that he took them, took them out there and put them in the thing. But he first went to go kill them. And then went and got in the bed with Shanann, like, knowing full well that he was going to kill her. So he smothered them, thought that he killed them, but they were they were just unconscious. So I'm going to read this real quick. This is supposed to be in his own words, letters that he sent to this woman, Cheryl Lynn. August 13th, morning of, I went to the girl's room first. Before Shanann and I had our argument, I went to Belle's room, then Cece's room, and I used a pillow from their bed. To kill them. That's in parentheses. Uh, That's why the cause of death was smothering. After I left Cece's room, then I climbed back in bed with Shanann and our argument ensued. After Shanann had passed, 
after he killed her. Um, after Shanann had passed, Bella and Cece woke back up. I'm not sure how they woke back up, but they did. Bella's eyes were bruised, and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. That made the act that much worse, knowing I had went to their rooms first and knowing I still took their lives at the location of the burial is basically what this is. So that's what I'm saying. Like, he had to know what he was going to do. You know, like, you planned that. You planned that. You knew she was coming home. But that's why I said, that's what the question for me became when he killed them. And then I, I came across this because then I, I found the interview with the babysitter first. Right. Because I was like, oh, my God, did he kill them and then go on a date and, like, wait for her to come home? He killed them first and then, like, she was there. And, like, I just, like, fully assumed that he killed them and then, like, waited for her to come home. But he killed them while she was there. Or tried to. And then he killed her and then they woke back up. And then he did it again, like, that made that much worse? Is that what made it worse? That they woke back up? They they looked like they had been through trauma? Oh, my God. Um, Like I said, he eventually admits that he killed them and Shanann. Uh, he pleaded guilty on November 6, 2018 to multiple counts of first-degree murder as part of a plea deal um, when the death penalty was removed from the sentencing. He was sentenced to five life sentences without the possibility of parole, three to be served consecutively, and two to be served concurrently. Right now, so he was um, in a prison here in Colorado, but shortly after he got sentenced, they moved him to Dodge Correctional Institution, some maximum security prison in Wanpun, Wisconsin. So one more thing that I want I want to get to really quick is... The girlfriend. According to this article, like shit that they didn't state in the documentary, is her coming around saying like she didn't know about the wife. Well, she didn't know that he was still married. She thought that he was separating and he knew she knew about the kids. But after they like kinda dig into her a little bit more, <laughs> they're like searching her Google searches and she's searched Shanann's like have full knowledge about her. Because like I said, she was like on YouTube and she promoted this, uh, some kind of patch you put on where it's supposed to give you energy that she also used herself. I think that's what the co-worker was part of. That's what she was working on. So she like, that's why she would have been like able to be Googled at the time before her death. Um, so like it comes out that they was like probably messing around before, more sooner than what she's saying. And also that she pursued him. He didn't pursue her. And she knew full on that he was still married. And she knew about these kids and everything too. What they're, what they're basically saying in here is that she came forward really quickly. So that she wouldn't be looking like she was like accessory to the wife coming up dead and everything else. So the cops still don't believe that she had anything to do with it. I don't have an opinion about that either way. Because, you know, like no evidence has been put before me. It's just a theory that I want to talk about because it's okay. in this article. Sure, sure. That is basically, like, I think I have everything that I want to talk about. And that is, like, the devastating murder of Shanann, Bella, and Celeste. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't you just divorce her? The conversation of y'all separating comes up. Why couldn't you just fall through with that? He wasn't really happy with his life with her. Well, that's what I was saying. I think that when he was going for her in the beginning, he was a fat boy. And nobody was really fucking with him. And she wasn't either. 
but he continued to pursue her. I think there was a time when she was vulnerable. I'm not speaking about, you know, how she felt because I don't know. She says that when he came around, it was like the best thing that happened to her at that moment. But I kind of feel like she was like, just found out she had lupus. She was battling for her life, basically. And he came around at just the right time when that was happening to her. And like I said, I don't know their relationship. I don't know her. I don't know him. So I won't speak on that. But I just feel like looking from the outside, I feel like there was something that they both needed at that moment. And that was why they were together. You know, then it comes out later on down the road that maybe that you didn't really want to be with her. Your family don't like her. You know what I'm saying? She says that she's like the dominant one in their relationship. And they show like this clip of them planning where he's like the the Santa Claus for Christmas. And he's like standing at the front door. And she's like, Santa Claus, where's your phone? And he's like in the garage. And she was like, I wanted it for pictures. So she has her phone. She's videotaping on her phone. It's like Facebook Live or whatever on her phone. And instead of her, like, taking pictures on her phone, she wants his phone. And she's like, Daddy's not following instructions. She's like, it's like being one parent by myself. And she's, like, going out and getting the phone and shit. And that's why I said there's, like, a, a large community of people, surprisingly women, who are like, um... She drove him to do it. She drove him to to kill her. You know, like whole conversations. This two like they have in the the documentary. These two women are talking, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Why are you victim blaming?" And she's like, "You don't know what goes on between two people." I think she drove him to do it. You know, and it's just like that's fucking terrible. That's terrible. Even if she did, he didn't have to kill. He could have no. left her. There's definitely like a a weird vibe of like emotional abuse right in the relationship i just kind of got the tip of the iceberg Uh of like because like i haven't i didn't read any of those forums about people saying anything about her because i don't want to read any of that like that's fucking terrible because at the end of the day the babies you know the babies and she was pregnant with another baby they knew the sex of the baby was a boy like, so she's pretty far along if they know the sex, you know? So I'm just like, they are the true victims again. I can't wrap my mind around why he tried to kill them first. I can't wrap my mind around he, why he killed them at all. But I think he got a taste of freedom for five weeks. You know what I'm saying? Where he was able to do whatever he wanted with this woman and bring her up in the house and have sex with her and shit and take pictures like... They were, like, full-on dates and everything. So I I just feel like he got a taste of what it would be like to not be with his family. And then he went back out there that last week they was in North Carolina, and he didn't want to do it anymore. And he's like, she's fucking pregnant on top of all that. (laughs) There's another baby coming, Mm. you know? And But like I said, instead of leaving her, like, um, leave her. Don't kill her. Don't kill your own kids. Leave her. It's heartbreaking. Like, I don't have kids, and... You know, I don't plan to have them. But I'm just like, that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking, the, the kids. I kind of find a little bit of comfort in uh, doing what we do here on the podcast because their stories deserve to be told. Right. This week we actually do have a piece of cake, which we just discussed a second ago, about Governor Polis pardoning thousands of past marijuana convictions We both agree that this is a good thing for everybody that's caught up in the gray area 
and uh, a lot of the people who are kind of serving on some bullshit weed charges. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I, I think that this should have been done a long time ago. Right. <laughs> because how long has weed been legal now? Oh, yeah, legalization, January 2014. Okay, so it's about time is what I'll say about that. Yeah. That's a good piece of cake. All right, well... There you have it, people. I do want to say one thing real quick. Oh, yeah. What's up? Uh, so, recently, it's like a bar that I go to and started frequently over this, like, COVID times or whatever. Zephyr. This bar has been around for over 70 years. It's off of Koufax and Peoria. Okay. And uh, I just got word today, like, everybody else, like, in the community of this bar, like, regulars who go there... That the owner sold in is going to be, like, turned into an apartment complex. They had this, like, huge, big Halloween party uh, last night. And they still, like, closed it down early or whatever. And then the owner sends out this letter to the people who work there this morning, basically trying to stop them before they go to work. Yeah. Saying that last night was the last night. I was only going there very shortly, very, very briefly. But the bartender there, Miss T, like... She gives you a strong fucking pour, and she's going to be missed as a bartender. So, like, I, wherever she's going, I know that's where everybody else is going. But I just want to say a brief, like, rest in peace Zephyr. Like, it just, you know, they should have went out with a bang and had a real big party last right. night. Um, A lot of their regulars was there. I was only there for a little bit, but... You know, like, my friend is a, a regular, and they could have had, like, a real big party and I you know I just want to pay a small homage whatever I can on our small podcast to the Zephyr because it's like nice nice R.I.P. Zephyr it's a tricky you know <laughs> it's, it's a tricky business yeah I mean like I understood his reasons you know like COVID hit him hard and they were saying he was saying that that whole block basically has been bought out by these developers who are going to put apartment buildings there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that whole area around there, which used to be Fitzsimmons, you know, the University of Colorado yeah. Hospital is there now. Yeah, yeah. And they're, like, building all these, like, hotels and all these different things. Like, our city is changing. And we can talk about the gentrification on another episode for a place that's been around for over 70 years. It should have had a, a better ending than it did. And I just want to have a, just a small little homage on, like I said, on our small podcast to the Zephyr. So rest in peace, Zephyr. Well put. Well yeah. put. <laughs> and, um, so anybody who's been listening to, if you've been rocking with us for these three episodes, we are very proud of them. Thank you very much. We appreciate everything. Um, we appreciate if you subscribe to our shit and fucking listen to it. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, I think I have a couple closing notes myself. The story today, I actually found um, some of my sources through um, a web forum uh, called The Demon's Den. Mm. And, and like, I do, I do like, a lot of, uh, like, web forums and stuff like that. Not bad. Yeah. What's ironic is we both selected some stories you know that had like children involved and it's heavy it's very heavy but like I said I like I told you like it's heavy but it needs to be told like yeah you know, I agree it's heavy I agree and that story that yours needs to be told too like sure well it's rough cheers this goes out to the kids to the kids to the victims of our stories mm mm Ooh. 
If you like the podcast, uh, find us on... Uh, well, I guess you've already found us. <laughs> uh, find us again and tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. And subscribe and review our shit. Playing us out, the spider and the fly proudly present Final Boss. Final Boss. <laughs>